Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 15, and it is the beginning of a new section in the book. To this point, we've looked at the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments, which we asserted are parallel judgments. They run up to the end of history and then back, and they cover the same territory, only in a more focused way. We noticed that these judgments were, were partial judgments. They were preliminary judgments. Today, we come to the introduction to the seven bowls of judgment. And they're neither partial nor preliminary. They are final and they are total. And so, the book is moving slowly to its climax. Um, we'll look at the text under five headings. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The five headings are there, Introduction, Conquerors, the Song, the Angels, and the Sanctuary. So first, the introduction. So Revelation 15, verse 1, John sees another sign in heaven. He had previously seen two great signs in heaven in chapter 12. One of those signs was the woman clothed with the sun, uh, a picture of of the church and the other was the dragon her adversary the church's adversary this sign here which john says is great and it's marvelous this sign will issue in the final outcome of the conflict between the dragon and the woman and the actual content the stuff of this sign the text says is seven angels with the seven last plagues. These seven plagues are the last. They are the final series of judgments, the text says, because with them, with these plagues, the wrath of God is completed, fulfilled. It comes to its end. So these judgments, like the seals and like the trumpets, only more in a more intense fashion, they take us up to the end. After the, after the bowl judgments, there's no cycling back. There's no interludes. In fact, there's no further witness of the church in the book of Revelation after the judgment of these bowls. In these plagues, the wrath of God is said to be finished. History is going somewhere, and it goes to this place. So, it's interesting that later in the book, <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 21... It is one of these very angels, one of these seven angels with the last plagues, who comes to John and shows him the descent of the new Jerusalem. And scholars have noted that this is a literary linkage. John is linking the bold judgments with the coming of the eternal kingdom of God. The same angel introduces both scenes. These judgments run up all the way to the end. With them, the wrath of God is complete. So that's his introduction. The second thing I want to talk about this morning is the conquerors. As usual with John in Revelation, instead of proceeding directly to the judgments, he gives us another vision. There's a lot of side glances in the book. And here John gives us another vision of the church. He sees again the church's final victory. And it's a victory which is heralded by these coming judgments. He sees what appears to be 
a sea of glass. The pavement, sapphire floor of the throne room of God. You might recall that the sea in Scripture, and we've said this numerous times in this series on Revelation, the sea is often a picture of the raging chaos of the nations, their turbulence. The beast in chapter 13 emerges out of the sea. And yet, the sea here, the sea is before the throne. We first saw this sea before the throne way back in chapter 4, when heaven was first opened in the book. This sea here is not a sign of turbulence, and it's not a sign of chaos. Back in chapter 4, we said that that sea, that serene sea before the throne, anticipates the stilling, the calming, the bringing to an end of the turbulence and the hostility of the nations, their fury, by the divine sovereignty. And this is why, at the end of the book, when the new heavens and the new earth descend, the text tells us there, there is no longer any sea. It's not a geographical statement about there'll be no oceans in the new heavens and new earth. It's a statement that says there will be no rebellious nations. There will be no raging. There will be no chaos. There will be no fury against the Lord. All of those ideas are in the background here. But there's something even closer to the surface. Something even more immediately relevant in this context. And it's this. This sea here is a sort of heavenly companion or a heavenly reflection of the Red Sea. This is why Exodus 15, the song of the sea, was the Old Testament lesson this morning. We've already seen a great deal, a great deal of Exodus symbolism in the book. And once these final bowl judgments are poured out, we'll see that they draw heavily on the imagery of the plagues that were poured out on Egypt at the Exodus. And so this is a sea which, like Israel of old, the saints have to cross. They have to pass through this sea. This is a sea of judgment and thus a sea of victory. That's why it's said to be mingled with fire. There's blood and fire in this sea. The blood of the martyrs is spilled in this sea. And the enemies of God are judged even as Pharaoh was judged in this sea. And that's why this Sea is mingled with fire. John sees, in addition to the sea, he sees this sea of glass. It's mingled with fire. But he sees those who had conquered the beast. That's a picture of the church as a victorious people after the final exodus, their final deliverance. Like Israel, John sees the church standing on the other side of the fiery glass sea, ready to celebrate, ready to rejoice in the judgment which has secured their final redemption. There are, if you will, three great ways of looking at the Exodus. You have the great event, which was read from this morning. You have the Exodus the deliverance from sin accomplished by Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection, and that will culminate in the final deliverance and exodus of the church through this glass sea mingled with fire into the new heavens and the new earth. 
These people who John sees, this is the victor's choir. They have conquered the beast, and now that the end has arrived, they are seen standing in the heavenly places. Now their glory is fully revealed. It is not always, or perhaps even often, fully revealed in history. Right? Colossians 3 says of the church, it says of you that you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, and your life, the church's life, is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ comes again in glory, then you shall be revealed with him in glory. So, this is the final victorious people of God seen in their splendor. They have resisted compromising alliances with the empire, either economic or religious or otherwise. And now, they worship God. Just as the Israelites were delivered so they could worship. Remember, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me. The worship and the glorification of God is the end, the goal, the purpose of your redemption. Redemption is not a thing in itself, It enables you to be a worshiper. And so they're seen here, this victorious choir, with harps in their hands, given to them by God, so that they may play unto their God. So let's look third at their song. They sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the Lamb. We read this morning the song of Moses. It's a celebratory song. You could hear that in it. It celebrates the great victory of God over Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods and his, all their forces arrayed against Israel at the sea. And here that song is transformed into the song of Moses and the Lamb. One new song, now taking into account the final exodus, the thing which the first exodus pointed to, which has now occurred through the Passover blood of the Lamb of God. The Exodus is, in that sense, not just a past event. Right? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says that he has to go up to Jerusalem and accomplish his Exodus. The culmination of which is here. So a new, a final Exodus has come, and you heard the text. What might be the response To this new, final, triumphant deliverance. Well, it can only be a song of praise. And we get that song here. You can see the content of it begins in verse 3. Great and marvelous are your deeds. I mean, John saw this sign in heaven. And in verse 1 of this text, he said this sign was great and amazing. Or great and marvelous. And now that the judgments have fallen the saints begin their celebration with the same language. The language of greatness. The language of marveling. I think there is something very important here. There is a sense in which the Christian life cannot be lived. And which Christian praise cannot be rendered. And which Christian confession cannot be given. 
without being, in a sense, overawed, without awe, without wonder, without amazement, without an awakened kind of astonishment. Great and marvelous signs are seen. And they, and they presage these great and marvelous judgments. And as the judgments are given, the saints in heavenly glory start with amazing. Right? To lose that sense of wonder is to lose something very basic in your Christian life, beloved. At the root of redemption is something great, astonishing. You, either in this life or the next, are going to witness the coming of this God to empty these cemeteries and to rectify and heal the cosmos. And you're going to clasp your hand over your mouth and you're going to be astonished and you're going to marvel and you're going to be amazed and your language is going to be incapable of grasping the magnitude of the thing that is set before us in this text. This is the Christian calling, the Christian hope, and the Christian summons. These are the judgments, the text says, of the Lord God Almighty. And this is John's favorite term for God. The Lord God Almighty. And the accent here is on his utter sovereignty over all of history. That he loses track of nothing. That he will restore all things. And the saints continue here and they say of the Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. That's what you will say at this scene. That these judgments reflect the character of this God, especially his justice. I've said it many times in this series on Revelation But without this coming judgment, dreadful in some respects as it is, awe-inspiring, there can be no such thing as justice. It is the justice of God which often appears to be called into question. Let's be frank about it. And certainly would appear to be called into question by the trampling of the church and the saints and the spilling of their blood which is shed in this book. It is that justice, often obscured, often clouded from our vision, which is here openly, manifestly vindicated. And not only God's justice, His truth. Truth, in in, in the biblical conception, really is something like fidelity, covenant fidelity, faithfulness. It's God's name, God's reputation, God's basic integrity, which is at stake in the reality of these coming judgments. And so, these bowls are going to be poured out. The world is going to be judged. But nonetheless, through the church's witness, there is here depicted a great harvest. It's it's spoken of in international terms. You can see that in verse 4. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? In one sense, the salvation of the nations is not first and foremost about the salvation of human beings. It's about gathering a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation to fear God. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and and to ascribe glory to his name? 
This is at the, the very heart of the church's prayer life, is it not? In the supper, in the supper, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray this, hallowed be thy name. Like, in other words, let your name be feared. And then at the end we pray, thine is the glory. So the saints, they see these judgments and they ask these rhetorical questions to which the answer is no one. No one will not fear or glorify God when he's revealed this way. And the reason for this is he alone is holy, the text says. The great thing, the magnificent thing, the thing that is great and marvelous and awe-inspiring, the thing which creates astonishment is that God himself is revealed in these works. His justice and his truth, but particularly the fact that he alone is holy, that he's incomparable and unique and transcendent over the nations. And this holiness of this holy God, who is the Holy One of Israel, your God, the one who's covenanted with you, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One in your midst. It's not a holiness which is locked away in some place, uh, afraid of being defiled by the sinfulness of the cosmos. This is a holiness which acts. This is what's going on in this judgment. God is purifying the cosmos. Cleansing the heavens and the earth, consecrating it, saving and judging. This one, the God who does these things, he alone is holy. And because he is revealing himself as that God, who will not fear him? Who will not glorify him? And so we have here these these extraordinarily hopeful confessions based on the visions of of the Psalms and the prophets of the nations being gathered to worship God because the text says his righteous acts, his judgments, have now been revealed. We are not here engaged in some sort of pie-in-the-sky-make-everything-better kind of vision. And that's because we have already seen the first exodus as an open historical fact in Israel's history. And we've already seen the root of this exodus as open historical fact in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This scene in this book is a footnote destined to occur. The righteous acts of God have been revealed and they shall be revealed in this consummate way. And this prospect of this coming judgment should fill the church with joy. Right? That's why the Victor's Choir, remember, you know who's singing this song? Let's not forget. This song is being sung by the Victor's Choir in heaven on the other side of the sea of glass mingled with fire. That's who's singing these words. And so we long for and we live for and we anticipate this day. There is, to be sure, the, the strata of fear and dread, there is a certain kind of terror associated with the second judgment. But I'm convinced it's not the dominant biblical vision. The dominant biblical vision is found throughout the Psalms where when the Lord comes to judge the nations, you know what happens. The trees clap their hands. The rivers sing for joy. The sea roars. 
and the hills skip because the Lord is restoring the creation. He's bringing order and renewal to all things. He's dealing with death and evil and injustice and human suffering and misery. It's an extraordinarily high and glad vision. And without it, we're just left in this bleak, meandering cycle. So the fourth thing here is the angels. In verse 5, John sees the heavenly tabernacle of the temp testimony opened. He's seeing the heavenly prototype of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. It's called, notice here, the tabernacle of the testimony. This should get a careful reader of the book of Revelation's ears up because testimony and witness are key themes in this book. In this con- So that the, the law was placed in the Ark of the Covenant as the testimony of God's character, as the witness to his presence. And in this context, the testimony now includes the testimony and the witness of Jesus, the faithful witness. Because remember, this is the song not only of Moses, but of Moses and the Lamb. And it includes your testimony. The faithful who've previously been described as those who keep the commandments of God. You are a dwelling place of God. The law of God is written in your hearts. And thus you testify. And this, testif- this testimony reveals God is just. It reveals his true will. And it's the, base, the rejection of this testimony is the basis of these coming bold judgments. That's what John's doing here. He's saying, look, these bold judgments are about to be poured out. They're not arbitrary. They're not random. They're not God having a bad day or being mean. They come because the testimony, open and public, in Jesus Christ, in the church, and before that in the law, has been abandoned and spurned. And so John sees coming out of the sanctuary seven angels with the seven plagues. These angels ultimately issue from the very heavenly tabernacle of God. They have shining linen and golden sashes. You might remember that Jesus, the transfigured and glorified Son of Man, had shining linen and a golden sash around his chest in chapter 1 when you get this vision of the risen transfigured Christ. These are his agents. And these are really priestly garments, right? This is temple language. It's a temple context. And the work of judgment that these angels are about to do is priestly work. And this priestly work is in response to your prayers, the priestly prayers of the people of God. And so in verse 7, one of the four living creatures gives to the seven angels the seven golden bowls. These are the same golden bowls of incense that were held in the heavenly court and that contain the prayers of the saints in chapter 5. It's difficult to keep up because John has got a very intricate web of linking symbols here. But these bowls, these incense-filled bowls have now become plagues. They're now full of the wrath of God. The prayers go up as incense. Wrath comes down. Prayer, we said earlier, is reversed thunder. It's thunder from earth to heaven. And then it's answered by thunder from heaven to earth. That is John's vision of Christian prayer as incense which goes up. And this again, this is not a peripheral concern to us. 
This is at the very center of Christian prayer. This is not a thing among other things. When we pray for the name of God to be hallowed and for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth, we are ultimately praying for this coming judgment unto salvation. Sure, we are praying for other things, but this is the end. So finally, then, the sanctuary. In verse 8, the sanctuary is open and is filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. This, is, this smoke answers to the smoke of the incense prayers of the saints. And notice that this is the smoke of God's glory and his power. It's the glory of God to bring judgments which vindicate his saints, judgments which convert the nations. This is why, beloved, all attempts to mitigate, to soften, or, or worse, to excise, to cut out, or to remove the judgments of God in Scripture, that all of those attempts are an attack on his glory. A person has to ask themselves, is God going to rectify the cosmos, including all the injustices of the past, and destroy death, or is he not? If he's not, go somewhere else on Sunday morning. Read the the paper. Either he's going to do these things, or he's not. This is why being bent toward the end is so fundamental. If he's going to do these things, then these are the things we are all yearning for. So that after we've prayed for the name of God to be hallowed, and for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, after that we affirm with this text, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. When we do that, we're offering smoke, incense, which triggers, which precipitates this smoke. All Christian prayer is bent to the end. This smoke, then, which comes forth is such that no one can enter the sanctuary. Now, we can't explore this here, but let me simply say this. When the glory of God filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40, Moses could not enter. And later, when the glory of God filled Solomon's temple, the priests could not stand in that holy presence to do their work. And that's what's going on here. God's glory is revealed. He fills the temple with smoke. What this is, is God is making the cosmos a temple. This heavenly temple will eventually descend and become the new heavens and the new earth. But that will not happen until, the text says, the seven plagues of the seven angels are finished. But God is committed to making the whole cosmos a tabernacle, a temple for his glory. The original tabernacle in Exodus, later the temple under Solomon, and you, the church, the temple of God, are all pictures of a renewed cosmos which will be one cosmic temple. And that cosmic temple is going to be filled with the smoke of the glory of this God. So let me assert two basic lessons from this text for the church We've done this before in Revelation, but as uh, Peter says in his epistle, it is no trouble for me to repeat myself. So, um, The first is this. God's glory includes, not only does it include, it's visibly on display 
in his just judgments. And a failure to embrace this really distorts the witness of Scripture. But not only does it, does it do that, it hurts you. It cuts the heart out of the church's coming song of joyful victory and celebration. It cuts this amazement out, this astonishment, this greatness. Because in this, he, the Holy One, comes in glory. And the second thing here, and I'm just restating myself, is that the whole, not a part, but the whole of our prayer lives are shaped by and long for and yearn for and hasten toward this scene. If you think of your prayers as incense being offered up into heaven and being gathered together into bowls and offered to God who will then come and cleanse the cosmos, you can see that prayer in a most fundamental way is ordered this way. Or a better way to put this is this, I think, or maybe a more accessible way, is to say, when we pray to the Holy Trinity, we are praying to our God and our Redeemer, our Creator, we should desire union with Him. We should aspire. In other words, He's not a slot machine, right? We're not just putting prayers in and waiting to see what happens. We're aspiring toward God. We're yearning for God. We want oneness with God. And if we want oneness with God, that means we need him to come. (laughs) So at the very heart of prayer is a yearning for a kind of communion which cannot be had in this life and can only be had with the resurrection of the dead. And so if our prayer lives are dominated and driven by other concerns, we may be indicating that this consummation is almost incidental to us. Right, just one thing among others. But it isn't. It's at the center. I would, I would submit to you that you cannot even begin to pray until scenes like this text occupy the center of your consciousness. It's very, very important. So I'll, I've done it before. Let me just briefly do it again for one minute. If, you, if we pray, let's say, for a bunch of people who are afflicted, which we will do later and which we should do, Ultimately, however, those people, even if healed, are going to die. Right? Poor Lazarus, he had to die twice. Right? If every prayer for healing is answered, you still don't have the heart of what we want when we pray, which is resurrection, immortality beyond probation. Right? We're not just praying for a string of healing so that the person can make it to 95. We are praying for resurrected, indestructible, immortal glory. So even the simplest prayer for healing is, if you scratch under the surface of it a little bit theologically, a prayer for this. It's a prayer for this. So we should commit ourselves to pray earnestly for the name of God to be hallowed and for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done. And when we affirm that, We affirm that to him belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory. We're offering reverse thunder, which is answered by this thunder and smoke in this scene of the coming glory and power of God. Amen.